Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Lawcast. This week, the march to WrestleMania continues as we take on WrestleMania V, where the mega powers explode. Kyush, what was it about this feud between Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan that made it so dynamic? I don't know if there had ever been a story in wrestling like this before. Obviously, for most of us, our knowledge of wrestling kind of doesn't go back further than like 1980. So I don't really think that there was, but to have a storyline where you have the two top baby faces in the company having an issue and they're both right and they're both wrong and to watch a relationship deteriorate like that, I'm not sure that two main eventers had ever had an on-screen friendship this high profile before and to watch it fall apart in real time was something incredibly special. It's funny because Vince McMahon loves to be like, oh, we're entertainment, we tell stories, we make movies. This is one of the only truly like cinematic stories I feel like they've ever told. Yes, and they did an incredible job with it. And it's one of those things where you couldn't tell this story today, or at least not this well, because you have too many opportunities to tell it. Like you have so many shows per week and so many pay-per-views. You could never just take the storyline from WrestleMania to WrestleMania without stretching it bizarrely. Here, they only had so many show, like high-profile shows to do angles on, and they made sure to sneak something onto all of them. So the whole storyline just tracks across the full year and unfolds beautifully. This might be the greatest work of art the WWE ever produced. Yeah, so they have SummerSlam, Survivor Series, Royal Rumble, and then the, the main event special on NBC where they shot the big angle. So it's really... And there's a couple Saturday night's main events in there too, but I don't think any of them were substantial. So it's really four or five points that they have to hit here. And they just slowly, the tension builds and builds and it starts with a look and then it's a touch and then it's all hell breaks loose. And here's the beautiful thing about it. If you asked me straight to my face right now, did Hulk Hogan have lust in his eyes? Yeah. You're damn right he You're did. Goddamn right he did. How that's, could he not? That scumbag Hulk Hogan was 100% into Elizabeth. But Randy's freak out is so heelish that you couldn't support Randy, even though you kind of felt like he was right. It's such a brilliant storyline. I'm just going to keep saying it's so good. It's just, can't everybody relate to this? Hasn't everybody been in a love triangle at some point? Absolutely. And just, the only thing about this storyline that doesn't work, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the show, is that for the first time, Elizabeth is required to talk. Eh, not great. Then it's not great. <laughs> no, no, she was very, very much best when she was just being kind of silent and pretty and innocent. But it's just so fascinating that Elizabeth is such a powerful figure in the mythos of WWE that she is what inspires this whole thing. And paranoia breaks apart this whole situation just because a girl is involved. Like, that's all it takes. And this, I mean, I can't say enough about it. Like, these two are so hot and so amazingly over at this point. Isn't and it crazy that it feels like they never did anything like this again? Like... You know, they didn't. I can't ever think of a time they put, you know, that had the two top baby faces kind of team up and then explode like this. And I'm probably forgetting something. But also, 
it's not like they ever did a lot of kind of more serious romantic storylines. The other one that jumps out at me is um, Shane and Test feuding because Shane didn't like that Test was dating Stephanie. And that was another one that was everybody can relate to that. Right. The other one that's super high profile and is kind of ironic because it's kind of still on TV today is Stephanie Triple H and Kurt Angle. Which one of the best storylines they'd ever come up with. And unfortunately, they had to kind of they shut it down much earlier than I think it should have been closed off. But I think uh, Triple H and Stephanie weren't comfortable with it. But it's just it's one of those things where like every time they do do one of these storylines, it gets massively over. It makes stars out of everyone involved. They get weeks and weeks of great television out of it. And then for some reason, they just forget. Like, it seems like they're just like, oh, well, whatever. But why can't we get more storylines like this? I mean, don't you think part of the reason it's so big is that it's something that attracts women to the show, too? I think you're absolutely right. I think that's the nail on the head right there, is that it's proven to have done that. That Yeah, like, if your you know girlfriend or wife is indulging your wrestling habit this is the kind of storyline she would actually get interested in because it features a woman in a prominent role and she's maybe more than just a piece of eye candy. Now, let's be fair. Wrestling has changed in general to become much more welcoming of women recently. And there are a lot more women fans. But that's the other thing, too, is that you have a lot more fans who would be interested in that sort of thing already there now. You're not just drawing in random casual people off the street. Like That fan base is ready for those stories now. And this kind of goes into one of my larger complaints about wrestling these days is that there's really very few interpersonal relationships between the wrestlers on screen. Like John Cena doesn't have any friends. No, baby faces are not allowed to have friends. The Um, shield are friends, but only with each other and not with. And only occasionally will that be acknowledged. It's impossible to imagine Roman Reigns having an on-screen romance with one of the women. Like it's just. Because it would be terrible. It would be terrible. Watching him try to emote. I mean, this is, I think, one of the fundamental problems with Roman Reigns, that there's just a lack of emotional range there. I would just love to see, like, Randy Orton, Roman Reigns, and, like, Natalia have a love triangle of no emotion whatsoever. Uh, Total tangent, but do you remember when they did a one-week storyline where Kane beat up somebody because he thought they were dating Kelly Kelly? Yeah, it turned out it was actually Randy Orton. Yeah, they were going to do something with Kelly Kelly and Randy Orton, weren't they? Yes, he had like they had hooked up, and he had like you know humped and dumped her, and Kane was obsessed with her. <laughs> Again, this is something that seems like it would really happen. Not saying Kane is a psychopath, but that Randy Orton's a piece of shit. Yeah, you could one hundred percent, and that's probably the storyline Randy Orton should have always had is yes. scumbag Randy Orton. If, you, if you're going to make a list of like wrestlers you wouldn't leave alone with your girlfriend, I think Randy Orton would be at the top of the list. Hell yeah. Um, so back on topic, this storyline is, as we said, amazing. And this feud between Savage and Hogan to me is so fascinating because the storyline and the reality are the same thing. Like it's like the height of Hogan, you know, it's the height of working into a shoot and kind of everything about Hogan being a work that in real life, Savage was jealous of Hogan. Hogan was threatened by Savage's talent, and Savage was always worried that something was going on between Hogan and Elizabeth. And you can, 
that's part of the magic of all of this is you can kind of see that there's more passion involved here than normally is. Obviously, Randy Savage is always overflowing with enthusiasm and charisma, but there's something edgy to this, especially for him. Like you can see anger in what he's doing. You get a lot more out of Hulk than you normally get. This isn't just like the normal Hulk post best. Like he seems mad at Randy. Yeah, he's very defensive. And that's great. That's a side of Hulk Hogan that you've yes. never seen before. It's good to bring characters out of you know their typical comfort space. Though it is kind of funny that it almost seems like this could have led to Hogan going heel. And then just for like the rest of his run in WWE, he'll just flash heel from time to time because who cares? But it's just it's a little bit weird when you look at it. I think Hogan going heel is too insane. But what I don't think would have been insane here would have been Savage escaping this match with the title. And I think it would have been the right move for business, at least in the short term. Because a couple months of house shows of Hogan challenging for the title after Savage had screwed him over at this show would have been unbelievably hot. Yeah, and we've already covered the SummerSlam from the following year, or from the same year where Zeus comes in and helps Randy Orton, that just better works into that storyline because then Zeus is the one who's helping him keep the title. And then you could just run that off until the next WrestleMania. The only problem is the next WrestleMania is kind of important for a different reason, and that's because it's Ultimate Warriors time, and I'm not sure that they're putting that off. I don't know if they're already seeing that a year in advance, but it's coming. It's they're they're not too far from it. Um, I think it was really in the fall of '89 they decided to go with Warrior, but but by this point, I don't feel like there's anybody else who's a Hogan successor. Right. Just no no one else is plausible at this point. It's just the hardest thing to realize about this match, which draws huge, even though it's the only thing on this card that's worth a goddamn, is the fact that two years from this. Randy Savage isn't even that important. Like, this is the heights that he's at. He's the champion. And one of the biggest storylines of all time with the biggest star of all time. And then they just kind of throw him to the side immediately after this. He'll never, they don't maintain him in the main event. And I guess I'm not sure if you could have because he would have had to run into Hulk again. And this few brands so hot, I'm not sure how you could have done that within a couple of years. But it's still, it sucks that Randy doesn't wind up getting all that much out of this. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it, not having Elizabeth, I think hurts him. He's just not the same without her. As much as I love Sherry and think that was a great pairing too, it just didn't have the same type of magic. Um, the Macho King gimmick was fun, but I think just it was a toned down, less threatening um, version than kind of the out of control animalistic savage that we're getting here. Right. Um, so, of course, they're back in Atlantic City. Uh, Trump wrote another check. They've somewhat renovated the building this year. They basically hung some Christmas lights from the ceiling. Yeah, is that one of the tackiest things that you've ever seen in your Jesus entire life? Christ, this arena is shit. It just, it looks so embarrassingly gross. Yeah, it's like a gigantic bingo hall. And it basically is, because it's Atlantic City. Now what I will give them is that they they must have more people in here, because it looks like there's a ton more people in the arena this time around. 
Yeah, they, they renovated the arena to add uh, like 2,000 more seats. I think part of the reason it looks so big is the floor <laughs> is gigantic. Um, right. It does like it doesn't go up the way a basketball arena does. There's only kind of a few rows at the back, so there's just masses of people sitting on the floor. So it kind of looks like a dome, even though it's you know just sort of a regular sized arena. And once again, because this is the Trump Plaza, everyone has to walk downstairs on their way to the ring. And I think I kind of I think six different people trip and almost fall on their way down the stairs. I do kind of like the stairs. I like it's different. Carpet, it's carpeting is gross. That is true. The carpeting is yeah. absolutely disgusting. The yellow carpeting that looks like it's you know in your parent in your grandparents' basement. Um, yeah, I do like the steps. Same way I loved um, the Lucha Underground Arena where they come down the steps. Mm-hmm. It's just it's something different when they had to carry King Haku's whole thing down oh, the God. steps. It looked really impressive. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the big, I think, expansion in 88 is they're running more pay-per-views now. They've added SummerSlam in August. They've still got the Survivor Series at Thanksgiving. And then they've taken the Royal Rumble to pay-per-view in January. So they're up to the big four, and they won't add a fifth one until um, King of the Ring in 1993. Now, a lot of people have always said, that they should have just kept it at four. Are you one of those people who think that that would have been better for business long-term? Oh, no. They made so much money selling more pay-per-views. I, the lessons of wrestling to me are people will always pay more and they'll always buy more. Um, whenever they would raise the pay-per-view prices, the theory would be that the buy rates would drop, and they never did. Like, There's a limit to how high the prices can go, but I think it's a lot higher than people think. As somebody who paid full price for a lot of shitty ass pay per views, let me tell you, they could have raised it to a hundred, and I would have kept paying. Yes, there are a lot of dumb people out there. I'm one of them. Um, and instead, they've gone in the opposite direction, and now they give their papers pay per views away for free. Appreciate that, by the way, WWE. Really, yeah. really appreciate yeah. that. It's it's the rare case where the consumer won. Uh, but did we? That's that's a topic for another time. Yeah, we, we get like shitty in your house long pay-per-views instead of yep. you know, shows we actually want to see. So just like last year, WCW counter-programmed with a free Clash of the Champions special. This is the one with the epic two out of three falls match between Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair. They go 57 minutes, Steamboat wins two falls to one an absolutely amazing match. If you've never seen it, you need to watch this match. One of the greatest of all time. Yeah, easily one of the greatest matches of all time. I am not an NWA WCW guy. Steve is the two, one of the two of us that's really into that stuff. This match translates across anything to anybody. It's one of the greats. Yes, but the show didn't really succeed because they didn't promote this match on TV at all. Uh, George Scott... Um, being incredibly old and seemingly having Alzheimer's, uh, fearing that if they promoted the match too much, it would kill their house show business, which I understand is an argument for not doing the match, but once you've booked it, you have to promote it. It's just... uh, It's one of those things where, like, as technology changes and the industry changes, if you have the wrong person in charge of your company, it will set it on fire. Yeah. 
it's just if you don't know how to steer into cable and you don't know how to steer into pay-per-view and you don't understand that house show business is not going to be your primary source of income but how a lot of people just didn't fully understand that and we've kind of covered how that's probably the number one reason that vince won is because he's the only person in the industry who seemed to get it yeah vince understood cable understood pay-per-view yeah, WCW, despite being owned by a TV company here, is not grasping kind of what's important for them. And their house shows were going like shit anyway. If you've listened uh, to any of Cornette's podcasts where he'll go like show by show through his books of like how much they were drawing, it'll be like, oh, and then we, you know, we're in, we were in Rochester, New York. House was $2,000. Our payoff was $250. And that's, Virtually every show from like 89 on. No house show draw in this era. Yeah. You can't really blame them. And then they would never really change that ever for like the rest of the history of WCW. Yeah, house shows yeah, were not. In the late game. 90s, they didn't really draw well for house shows. I mean, when they were absolutely on fire, they started to, but never kind of to the level they should have been. I was always surprised that WWE didn't kind of learn a lesson from that, though. Because despite the fact that they weren't running house shows, they were just putting all their focus into their TV. I can't even say they're putting the focus into the pay-per-view product. They were just putting their focus into their TV product. That's a large part of the reason why they were so successful with it, is that they were just focusing on this one aspect instead of spreading themselves thin. WWE never really seemed to learn that lesson. They're still running house shows as if anybody gives a shit about house shows in 2018. I have a hard time believing very many of their house shows are profitable when they're drawing, you know, three or four thousand people on average i don't know what the point is me neither um so this clash of the champions draws only a 4.3 rating compared to a 5.6 the year before and most embarrassingly they draw barely five thousand people which wouldn't normally be a disaster except this show was held at the louisiana superdome uh. yes <laughs> It is pitch black in the Superdome. They have turned out all of the lights so that you can't see. And Jim Ross on commentary is trying to sell, oh, well, we got a massive crowd here in New Orleans. Uh, people as far as the eye can see. And this is what, like five years after uh, Bill Watts drew like 50,000 in the Superdome? Yeah. Um, this is, yeah. The, this New Orleans has totally dried up at this point. Um, oil oil bust has killed the local economy and also WCW is just not hot at this point. Just an absolute disaster. Never should have tried to run that arena. Woof. Yeah, I mean, just you don't run a dome unless you can at least come close to filling it. It just look even if you draw 25,000 people in the in in a Superdome, it's still going to look bad. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it will look worse because then you actually have to show those people because a lot of yeah. people came and it's not enough. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as the build, it's all about the mega powers. Um, Hogan and Savage first team up in the fall of 87 when Savage is getting beaten up by the Honky Tonk Man and the Hart Foundation on an episode of Saturday Night's Main Event. Elizabeth runs backstage. She brings out Hulk Hogan. He makes the save. And they do their infamous handshake, and the mega powers are formed. The, the very first moment. Now, I can't remember if it was Savage who like showed the video of all of the various moments that Hulk Hogan had like tried to betray yes. him in his mind. But the very first one is this night 
where they lift Elizabeth on their shoulders and Hulk Hogan puts his hand on Elizabeth's ass. Seems innocent, but was it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you've got Savage just insane with jealousy, and you've got Hogan being, no, I was just trying to balance her. It looked like she was going to fall. He totally grabbed a handful of that ass. Oh, and who wouldn't have? But, like, yes, yes, he absolutely did. I guess the real debate of this storyline is, was Elizabeth feeling Hulk Hogan? Mm. I mean, Randy didn't treat her well. And I think that was actually part of the storyline is that a lot of people at the time wanted her to leave Randy for Hulk. He was being an abusive dick. <laughs> a better suitor than George Steele. Yes, that, that's definitely the case. And it actually is funny how it's a similar storyline to the one they ran with George Steele. Yes. Um, at WrestleMania 4, as we covered, Hogan helps Savage win the title, cuts off Andre the Giant's interference, hits Ted DiBiase with a chair and sticks around to celebrate rather than give Savage and Elizabeth the moment to themselves. He just wanted to celebrate with his friend. He was just there to be nice. Of course. They're the best of friends. They beat Andre and DiBiase at SummerSlam when Elizabeth takes off her skirt to reveal the largest pair of panties you could possibly find. <laughs> Not the bikini we were promised. Not not at all. Not e not even uh, at all. Yeah, that was not going to happen, it turned out. Savage was not gonna be cool with that. But this is this the lust in his eyes moment? This is the look. Yeah, this is the look <clears throat> that just you know he's uh, is it pride in how you know beautiful and strong Elizabeth is, or is it lust? Lust in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. At Survivor Series, Hogan, Savage, Hercules, Hillbilly Jim, and Coco Beware defeated Akeem, Big Boss Man, Haku, the Red Rooster, and Ted DiBiase. I love the Survivor Series from this era just for seeing teams like that. What a bunch of random dickheads <laughs> on these teams. And they have to pretend like they're all friends. Yeah. Hulk Hogan and Coco Beware hang out all the time. All the time. Um, in the celebration afterwards, this is where Hogan puts his hand on Elizabeth's back to balance her. And Jesse on commentary starts stirring the pot. Jesse's already figured out where this is going. That's one of the best things about this storyline is that Jesse catches on to it and starts. He starts pushing it here and never stops. Yeah. Because he's had an agenda against Hulk Hogan from the start. And it's probably without his commentary, a lot of the fans wouldn't have really been smartened up to this, even by the end of it. And isn't it always the best when you can see what's coming? Doesn't that make the payoff better? Yes. Um, I mean, I think that's it's always like that in the movie. In a movie, when you can, you're not sure what the twist is going to be, but you start to think, "Oh, I think I know what's going on here," and then you get the payoff for it. Right. Um. At the Royal Rumble, Hogan eliminated his good friend Savage, dumped him over the top rope. Like an idiot, this left him alone with Akeem and the Big Boss Man, and he got the shit kicked out of him and thrown out of the match himself. Which is, I think, just a hilarious moment. Hulk Hogan is a heel in every Royal Rumble he ever participates in. Yep. It's like the only time he really gets to embrace his inner dickishness. And so that set up Hogan and Savage against the Twin Towers at the main event on NBC. This is the match where Elizabeth gets knocked down. 
Hogan carries her to the back to get medical attention. He abandons Savage. Savage gets destroyed two-on-one by Akeem and Boss Man. And this leads to tensions boiling over where Savage attacks Hogan backstage after the match. This, of course, being just a calamity of live TV where you've got they cut back at the wrong time and Hogan's just kind of standing there out of character talking with the crew. There's another there's a later moment where Bruce Beefcake just wanders into the state, wanders into the shot about 30 seconds early and then just kind of slinks out of it (laughs) only to come back later. Yeah, just total fuck up on live TV here. Yeah, it's one of those things that we just kind of charitably ignore about past storylines. Like, hey, this was brilliant. Let's not talk about the part where they almost completely fucked it up. Yeah. Um, We mentioned Kurt and Triple H and Stephanie earlier. The best part is is that they redid this moment for the Kurt Angle, Triple H, Stephanie storyline where Stephanie gets hurt, Kurt carries her to the back, and then they make out for a minute. Oh, yeah. Oh, the sparks were flying. That's just subtext here that maybe Hogan and Elizabeth kissed. We don't know. That's what Savage thinks. This they make the, that full text. They don't really even acknowledge like Savage and Elizabeth are, you know, mates. I mean, like they kind of just refer to her as their manager, his manager. You know, that's a good point now that I think about it. It's all very chaste. Huh. Like, I guess... And maybe that's part of what makes this such a special storyline is that this is the first time that they implicitly make it clear what that relationship is. Yeah. Um, Also, no mention of Hogan being married. I think it's just kind of like the the characters are not real people in this era. They only exist on TV. Hulk Hogan belongs to all of us, brother. Yeah. I mean, and it's not, I don't think it would hurt Hogan as a draw for, to acknowledge that he's married, because I don't feel like there were a lot of female fans who were, you know, into the Hulkster in that way. No, it's so funny. Like the people who throughout history have had to sign these like weird agreements not to admit that they're ever in a relationship. Like Kenta Kobashi, who was an ugly, ugly fuck, had to like deny that he was married for like ten years. Like, I've got. I've got a theory that only ugly men can be successful top baby faces. I think that's probably true. Isn't it? When you think it's like Bruno Sammartino, Hulk Hogan, um, Steve Austin, uh, The Rock. But The Rock was always really kind of a heel, even when he was a baby face. Right. Um, But yeah, when you have an attractive top face, the men get jealous. Like, this is... How you explain Shawn Michaels, John Cena, Roman Reigns. Yeah. I think that's a way bigger part of the backlash against John Cena and Roman Reigns than anybody's ever comfortable admitting. Yes. I mean, again, I will reference the girlfriend or wife who is begrudgingly watching wrestling with their mate. And he gets tired of her being like, ooh, he's cute. Who's he? Yeah, fucking fucking Roman Reigns. Apparently he just puts a man bun up and he's hotter than I'll ever be. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, he is, guys. He's yeah, hotter than you'll ever be. For sure is. Uh, also, this is why Randy Orton never got over his face. That and the fact that he's Randy Orton. <laughs> <laughs> so after this, Hogan challenges Savage for the title at WrestleMania Five. Savage takes his time, but he eventually accepts the challenge. <clears throat> And so the match is set. The only question left is whose corner will Elizabeth be in? Mm. Mm. 
We'll see. The show opens with Rock and Robin performing America the Beautiful. What the this, fuck was this? Again, did the actual performer get stuck in traffic or something? Rock and Robin sings America the Beautiful like she's never sung a note of any song before in her entire she life. Cannot sing. She is awful. And like we had Gladys Knight last year. Yes. We had Aretha Franklin in Detroit the year before that. What the fuck is this? And we have Run DMC on this show. Just have them do it. Yeah, that would have been awesome. Like, um, this is just so weird and random. Yeah, so Rockin' Robin is, of course, the daughter of Grizzly Smith, half-sister of Jake the <coughs> Snake Roberts. Nothing to that. I've just always found that interesting. Absolutely. Um, and then our opening match is King Haku versus Hercules. Oh boy, starting with a bang. All right, let's talk about King Haku for a second. Why did they make him King Haku? Because everybody's. I mean, the king is the king was like a title. It got passed around. Harley Race was the king. Junkyard Dog was the king. Now Haku is the king. Randy Savage would later be the king. It was this odd mix of you could either win the King of the Ring tournament or beat the king. Oh, Jim Duggan was the king for a while, too. Right. But I would have loved it. Like, look, Haku is amazing. If you don't know about Haku, you need to look that shit up because he's probably legit the toughest man in the history of the wrestling business. Like, he is up there. Like, he is a badass. And... You could probably have pushed him so much further than they ever did, aside from the fact that you can't talk. But if you're going to make him King Haku, why can't he be like Samoan King Haku? Why does he have to be like English King Haku? Like, he's doing it the exact same gimmick that like Harley Race was just doing right before him. He can't pull that shit off. Yes, we want this gimmick to be more racist. Like, savage, barbaric, island King Haku. I mean... <sighs> All right, okay, that's complicated. You're right. Dude, it's the 80s. Just roll with that. Okay, yeah, that's a fair point. Okay, you got me there. You if, got it me happened there. Ba- if it happened before 1990, it really doesn't count. Yeah, we're not super woke in this era. Fair point. I'll let that one pass. Um, so Hercules has been dumped by Bobby Heenan, and thus he's fighting against his old manager. So many storylines in this era are run through the managers. Like, you can't imagine this time period without managers because literally every heel has one. Oh god yes in fact this is one of what is it four matches that bobby heenan is in tonight that sounds right yeah, <laughs> and he in... has a match tonight yeah that, that's just wild to think it's like you don't really even think of the wrestlers so much in the mid card from this era it doesn't matter who the wrestlers were it's just which one was bobby heenan or jimmy hart managing yeah and it's just the number of men. It's amazing that they've just, they've essentially eliminated this position at this point. The only manager left is Heyman. So and he's not a manager. He's an advocate. Cause so many of these guys could use a manager. Oh my God. Yeah. Somehow in an era where the guys are worse talkers than ever, they don't have people to talk for them. Such a shame. Uh, this is not a particularly good match. I didn't hate it. There's some decent power stuff, but nothing special. Yeah, agreed. Like, there's nothing. The <clears throat> backbreakers that Haku does on Hercules are some awesome, vicious backbreakers. But that's really yeah. all I can say. 
Um, uh, Hercules ends up getting the win with a back suplex into a bridge. You know, decent opening match. Pro- probably better than you would have expected from these two. For sure. I'm yeah. I'm I'm all the way in on Haku. I really wish he'd gotten a bigger push here. I think it's if he were a couple inches taller is the problem. But he never really did when he was in WCW, and they needed people either. Like he just kind of floats around for his whole career. It's amazing that as much as yeah, he, his reputation is he's like the toughest guy ever, but never really got a big push. In fact, probably like the most relevant moment of his career was what when he puts over DDP in the Thunderdome or whatever. And he like agrees he, to take the diamond cutter. When he showed up at the Royal Rumble in um, 2001. That was cool. I'll always remember that moment. Yeah. It was a really random ship jump. And he was the reigning WCW hardcore champion. I mean, how do you turn your back on that? Yeah. They uh, did, did not bother to have him bring that belt over. Nope, they sure didn't. I hope he offered. They were just like, why would anyone care about that? The what now? <laughs> uh, next up, we've got the Rockers against the Twin Towers. As always, Monsoon has to bury the Rockers. He buries them so hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they were out partying a little late last night. And like, I, I get what it is. It's so weird. I get that Gorilla doesn't like that these young whippersnappers are coming in, yeah. stealing established spots and being un- disrespectful dickheads, but be professional, Gorilla. Damn. This is somehow every single pay-per-view match he manages to find a way to just be like, yeah, these guys are partying way too much. They're not taking this seriously. Uh, which is so funny because this is already after they had been fired and came back, right? Yeah, well, they got fired. Yeah, they were literally in in for about a week before they got fired the first time. It was like they brought them in, told them, like, no bullshit. And they had an incident at the bar, which seemingly was actually uh, uh, Jimmy Jack Funk or Billy Jack Haynes' fault. I think it was Billy Jack Haynes. It was something Jack something. Yeah. Uh, Caused some Marty got with some girl who he was thinking he was going to get with and that was the end and then but this they've already come back and they paid their dues like give them a break gorilla damn yeah and now we come to akeem the african dream what is this gimmick Look, there are people out there who swear by this gimmick who love akeem the african dream grew up with it love it it's the best it's Look, bro, it's fucking racist. It's even if you ignore that, it's just stupid. Like one year this before guy was this, the one man gang. Yes. that's an amazing gimmick. A year ago, he was the one man gang, working house shows with Hulk Hogan, being a badass. Now he's like, is it supposed to be a weird like comment on Dusty Rhodes? Oh, totally. Right. But why? Bruce Pritchard, when pressed, had to not to say it was a rib on Dusty, but that it was a, a, a we're stealing from the best was how he phrased it. It's just like, come on. Yeah. And like, this is something playing to an audience of Vince McMahon. This is one of those like the people writing the show thought it was funny. Yeah, let's put a, make put a gimmick on him where he acts like he's black because haha, Dusty does that. Dude, yeah. what? 
Yeah. So, I mean, the, the Twin Towers are still a good tag team, but man, the big boss man and the one-man gang would have been terrifying together. Yeah, it's it's weird to see boss man and Akeem together because they have nothing in common. No. Nothing. Whereas with you know the boss man and the gang, <laughs> it's like, oh, the crooked cop teams up with the criminal. Yes, that's brilliant. You know, maybe they met when boss man was a prison guard and one man gang was doing some time. That's such a good idea, and there's something to that. And it seems like they did they create this team when it was the one man gang, or did they just randomly wait until he was Akeem? It feels like he was barely ever the one. It's just he turns into Akeem so fast. He's one man gang at WrestleMania four, and by the by Survivor Series, he's Akeem. I I've never gotten the full story of what happened there. Weird. Yeah. Um, a shame because I th- think he was a really great talent and could have had a much better run without this gimmick. Agreed. Um, the Rockers get a really nice pop. This is a good match. Uh, the Rockers are using their quickness. You know, those tag team specialists are able to compete with the big boys. And I was just thinking while I was watching it, at some point, Jesse says something along the lines, like the cliche that you've heard a million times before, like, uh, Gorilla, they're going to have to, the longer this match goes, the more it benefits the smaller guys. And I was like, I wonder if this is the first time anyone ever said that. Because at some point, that cliche has to start, right? Yeah. I mean, it could be right. It just, they're so, I mean, they're not that small. Like, I mean, I feel like today, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty would both be like two relatively big guys compared to most of the roster. But for this era, they're so tiny. Yeah, just being six foot makes you like, what the fuck are you even doing here? Yeah, somehow wrestlers have shrunk dramatically. Um, Janetti gets caught on a leapfrog. He gets destroyed. Uh, there's a miscommunication by the towers. Michaels tags in. Uh, Jesse rightly complains that the Rockers are breaking the count, but the referee is not enforcing the rules of tag team wrestling. That's true. Akeem levels Michaels with a huge clothesline. Bossman tags in, goes to the top rope, but misses a headbutt. It's crazy to watch the Bossman fly like that. He is such an unbelievable athlete. It's like... Here's the thing that's crazy is when he came back in the Attitude Era, he had lost, like, I swear, 100 pounds but he, his back was bad, so he was immobile at that point. Right, he was the wrestler then that you would have expected him to be at this point, just like a slow, plodding, like, vicious badass. I love Big Boss Man. I like my One of my dream tag teams would have been, like, him and Bam Bam to get, like, a run together yeah. as, like, these high-flying big dudes. Like, they could have done that. Him and Vader had some good matches in WCW. Yeah, that sounds good. Just a, a guy that size moving like this is crazy to watch, especially in this era where, you know, most guys are pretty much slugs. It just, and it's one of those things where it's like, what could have been? This is an era where good wrestling matches is nobody gives a shit about trying to do that. It's not important. It's not interesting. It's not even what the fans have been conditioned to ask for. But man, if they had actually needed to have good matches, he could have done some shit. Um. Bossman sets up for what looks like a power bomb, but he gets tricked by Janetti. Double missile drop kick by the Rockers. Janetti uh, comes off the top rope, seemingly for a hurricane run or something. But Bossman catches him with the power bomb. 
Akeem tags in big splash one two three really good match. Yeah, this is a short match, but it is exactly what you want it to be. This is this is like the Rockers are like the perfect opening match team. They're like super exciting and interesting, and they get their asses kicked here, and it's great. We go backstage where Tony Schiavone interviews Ted DiBiase and Virgil. Tony Schiavone. His only WrestleMania appearance ever because they are never putting his ass in the hall of fame. <laughs> no, they are not. Um, Vince just hated his Southern drawl. Now, Ted DiBiase and Virgil are so good. But look how far down the down the card they've already fallen from last year. Like we were having a discussion about should Ted DiBiase be the top guy, yeah. And here they are facing not Hulk Hogan, which nope. is what I will call Brutus Beefcake from now on. Hogan's weed carrier. Yes, and it's like, and they're gonna fall even further as time goes on because there's no baby faces in this company to fight other than Hulk Hogan. There's nobody else. So if yeah. you're a heel and you're not actively fighting him, what are you doing? Yeah, this is a fundamental problem of you know no Piper around. You got Jake, and Jake and DiBiase will have a good feud the year after this. But yeah, it's a thin, thin babyface roster. Absolutely. I mean, the number two face is Duggan now, I guess. I guess. <laughs> and we're Beef talking about a... Beefcake's up there. Yeah. Beefcake's number two or number three. And I mean, look at the heels on this roster. I mean, you got Rude. You got, I guess, Andre still at this point. You got Perfect coming up. You got DiBiase. You got all of these guys and nothing for any of them to do. The only thing that matters is who's going to work with Hogan on top. Exactly. Um, In a funny moment, DiBiase goes to shake hands with Trump in the front row before the match. Uh. Um. DiBiase now has the million dollar belt. They gave him that after WrestleMania 4 because why not have the million dollar man just buy his own title belt? I did always like that where he's just like, well, I didn't win the belt, but fuck it. Who cares? I got this belt. It's just way better. My own belt. Um, million dollar belt not on the line in this match. How many times was it on the line? Pretty much never. I, I think Virgil's the only guy who actually won it from him. I think so. As far as I remember, Jake stole it at one point. Uh, that'll be the basis of their feud the year after this. Gumbag Jake. <laughs> uh, Beefcake controls early. DiBiase keeps bailing. DiBiase gets in a cheap shot and takes over. They do a double clothesline spot. Both guys are down. Uh, DiBiase gets Beefcake in the Million Dollar Dream, but Beefcake gets to the ropes. Beefcake turns things around, gets DiBiase in the sleeper. Beefcake gets distracted by Virgil and breaks the hold. They go to the floor. This is where I noticed that the Ring Aprons WrestleMania 5 sign is clearly just the same one that they used the year before, but they scratched the eye in the Roman numeral off. Yes, they did. What a weird thing to skimp on. Why not, just get, a mat why not just get an apron that said WrestleMania? Man, that's a great point, because he could have just used it every year. I don't yeah. know. Which they it, will eventually start doing. It's almost like they just nobody remembered to actually buy a new <laughs> ring. Until the day of. Yeah. It was like, oh, shit. 
Um, they fight on the floor and they get counted out. A pretty good match with a shitty ending. Why can't Beefcake ever get beat? I'm not sure who does more jobs during this era, Hulk Hogan or Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Jesus, Brutus the fucking barber. Like, literally every match that he has goes to a double countout or a disqualification or something like that to, I guess, protect him. And here's the thing. We've mentioned this on the podcast before. Brutus Beefcake was over. He actually was. He was Hogan's best on-screen friend, except for Randy Savage for a brief period. And the fans like him. They pop for a sleeper hold. It's just, his matches may as well not exist. Like, it's nothing ever happens in them. There's never a conclusive finish. They never go anywhere. None of his feuds ever really end. Nothing happens. It's just, yeah, all the worst tropes of 80s booking are present with him. Just like everything bad about wrestling from this era follows Brutus Beefcake around like a shroud. Oh, um, we get a clip of Lord Alfred Hayes trying to interview the Bushwhackers at the biceps, bagels, what the hell is it called? Bagels, biceps, and something brunch. I didn't realize it was at that. I thought they were just showing another part of the arena. And I was just like, why are they just like eating pancakes and shit right pancakes, now? Pancakes, but long before the New Day did. They were literally just, okay, here's the Bushwhackers. If you haven't gone back and ever really watched the Bushwhackers, they were originally a team from New Zealand that were hardcore badasses. Like basically they would bleed buckets every single night, spikes to the face, that whole deal, right? That true like 70s style old school hardcore wrestling. And then they brought him in, and I don't know who had the idea of saying, like, let's take these super weird, scarred-up New Zealand guys and turn them into a comedy tag team. All they do is they go around doing the bushwhacker dance and licking people. Lots of people who did not ask to be licked. There's a lot of sexual harassment suits going on there. And just eating stuff. That's all of it. All of it. They're crazy over. They're so over. The crowd loves these guys, and they do this for years and years. <laughs> like, I didn't realize that they were in the company this early, because they're still going to be in there, like, through the, the early 90s. 90s. Yeah. 93, 94, even. They were still there when I started watching all the time. Yeah. So here they're taking on the fabulous Rougeau brothers. It's a really boring match. I mean, yeah, this match sucks. <laughs> yeah, these Bushwhackers matches are unwatchable. The the Bushwhackers have one spot, the battering ram spot. Yeah. Uh, The Rougeos lose here clean in, uh, I guess it went nine minutes, but still, like, this felt like kind of a burial for them. But was it clean? Because it's really weird. Because at one point, I think Raymond is being pinned and Jacques runs in and, like, stomps. Yeah, stomps on the Bushwhacker to break up the pin, and it just doesn't break up the pin yeah, like he stomps work. on him and it just doesn't work i've but never you, seen that before i know you can breathe on a guy and he goes flying off them usually yeah that was so weird he just gets stomped on he's just like whatever i'm just gonna keep pinning this guy yeah, the rougeos looked like shit here they did um next up we've got mr perfect against the blue blazer yes it's owen hart in the wwf in 1989 this is a good goddamn match Oh, God, what a combination. I can't believe Owen didn't get over as the Blue Blazer. Doesn't that seem like a perfect gimmick for this era? I wonder if it was... 
it's sort of like a half-assed luchador thing, which I'm not really sure that luchadors had a lot of public awareness at that point in time. So people may have just thought, like, who's this weirdo in the mask? I, I don't know if that's the case. I'm kind of just projecting because I don't know. He's very impressive here. Oh, yeah. Watching him just fly around the ring and do head scissors and moonsaults. I just, how I'm stunned he wasn't more successful because he doesn't even start to get over at all until the end of 93. And see, I, I love Owen Hart. Believe me, I do. But to be perfectly honest, I love him more as this than I love him as Owen Hart. Like, I love him, like, the idea of him as, like, WWE's version of Tiger Mask way more than I love the Owen Hart that we got, except for, like, the brief period where Owen would feud with Brett. That never really spoke to me. This is awesome. Um, so the announcers comment on Hennig coming out in a singlet. <laughs> this is the debut of his, I don't know if I'd say iconic, but his signature singlet. He'd been wearing trunks before this, which never looks right. Yeah. And he doesn't have the music yet. He comes out to zero music. Yep. Which and I think he's the only one on the show who does. Very few. Yeah, I mean, almost everybody has music by now. Though most of them are just using, like, licensed music from movies from back in the day. Yeah. Um, you know, a fast-paced match here. Blazers flying around the ring. Uh, he goes for a splash and really roughly lands on perfect knees. That looked like it hurt. Yeah, but it looked awesome at the same time. Uh, Blazer almost gets the pin with a crucifix. Perfect comes back with a big knockout punch and the perfect plex. A five-minute match, but a really good five minutes. I would have watched it for another 20. Um, and then they introduce Jesse to the crowd, and he blows the roof off again. He gets a bigger pop than Hogan and Savage get. <laughs> God, he's the man. I mean, as I pointed out, he's one of the biggest stars in this company. He was in The Predator... Um, I think The Running Man has come out by now, or it came out that summer. Like, He's a legit movie star, way more legit than Hogan ever was. And I've never really watched the WrestleManias in chronological order like this. So after all the years of you telling me that Jesse Ventura was like the best color commentator of all time, and I have seen enough of him to agree with that, but watching all these in a row, you really get to appreciate Jesse Ventura was a work of art from this period. His commentary is incredible. The fans love Jesse. He might be the most over guy in the whole goddamn company. Yeah, I just, I, I love the way he points out the hypocrisy of the babyface announcers, especially when he's getting on Vince. It, you, I think you're right that it works better with Vince than Monsoon. Because he respects Monsoon. Like, it's yeah. a little playful between the two, but he buries Vince, and that's yeah, the he's best. He's got no respect for Junior. That's the best. And he even, like, he'll call out, there are moments, if you go back and watch the shows where he and Vince call shows together, where he'll call out the booking, knowing goddamn well that Vince <laughs> did the booking. Yeah, I just, he lives to fuck with Vince, because he knows Vince can't fire him. Yep, that's the best. He tried to form a union, and Vince didn't fire him, is how over he was. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Run DMC performed the WrestleMania rap. Um, Good musical guest. That's a good get in 1989. Is this the only good musical guest in WrestleMania history? Like, not including the national anthem? Uh, yeah, probably. I'm trying to think of the other. I mean, they seem to do one every year now, and they're never, never good. Right. I, I can't uh, think of a time where it was ever like, oh, they got them? That's well, pretty I mean, cool. 
counting are we counting like when bands would play somebody to the ring do their entrance music Sure, because I can't think of a time that was ever cool. Oh, living color, cult personality. Oh, I forgot about that. That was oh, so cool. Rock the shit out of that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that was an amazing entrance. Um, yeah, I can't wait till we get to some of the WrestleManias with Motorhead, so I can transcribe what they actually sing. It's all about the game and the game, then to play it. Play it no way you can take me. I will play me. How do they? Like, how <laughs> late are they that they don't know the words to their own song? I'm, but like you gotta understand that. Let me probably recorded that in passing one day. It's like yeah, whatever. Let me lay this down. Fuck it. Who cares? Somebody handed him a sheet. He read it off. I'm not going to remember that 10 years later. Yeah, and Triple H gets them booked for like five WrestleManias in a row. <laughs> I just love that Triple H was such a fanboy for Lemmy, and like that was cute. Um, Next up, we've got Demolition defending the tag titles against the Powers of Pain and Mr. Fuji. The belts are on the line, even though it's a handicap for some reason. I hope that if Powers of Pain and Fuji had won, they would have invoked Freebird rules. Let's talk about the most important thing about this match. And that is that they picked the wrong two people to be demolition. Oh, you were just committed to ruining everybody's childhood. Look, I know I come on here every single time and I <laughs> bury demolition, but they suck. They're two old truck driver looking motherfuckers <laughs> wearing BDSM gear. They bought for $5 at the local store. The powers of pain look like the road warriors. Yes. I that that is the thing that stands out is the powers of pain are fucking jacked, especially the warlord. And I know we put the warlord over every time we do one of these, but God, he looks incredible. Uh, sometime we're gonna get Batista on this podcast and just do a warlord <laughs> retrospective <laughs> of all the warlords three fans in the whole world. But look, the warlord and the barbarian look impressive. And demolition is just a gimmick. It's just the BDSM wear. It's just the makeup. It's just the angry promos. Anybody could have done that. And if you're trying to create the Legion of Doom, pick people who look like the Legion of Doom. Yeah, like would have killed. I mean, like there's not a lack of roided up dudes in 1989, and they they had just signed two versions of. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get it. But what then was- to have both versions feud with each other is just fucking weird. I think Fuji was the most impressive part of this match. He's probably in his 50s, but he was moving and looking good here. Fuji was getting it. I, I did love that. Let's also talk just for a second about like the set, like the the segment that they show at like the 5K run. Going <laughs> to run a 5K marathon in his full tuxedo with bowler oh, hat. He didn't run the whole thing. He cheated. I thought for sure they were going to turn that into like a comedy angle where he's like sneaking out and like running to win the race at the end. But no, they just flat lie to us and say that he ran it. Mr. Fuji will investigate. Oh my God. Uh, Axe and Smash retain after the demolition decapitation on Fuji. Yeah. Yeah, not not a, the, the crowd was not hot for this either. No, when are demolition over? Because we've done a lot they, of shows. They, they were over last year when they were kicking the shit out of Strike Force. That's fair. It's just like I always hear about how amazingly over demolition was, and we've done a lot of demolition shows, and not a lot where people give a shit about their matches. They're over at six. Um Against uh, Andre and Haku, the crowd's really behind him. Okay. Uh, 
Backstage, Tony Schiavone tries to get into Randy Savage's locker room and can't do it. Nobody's letting that slapdick in the door. <laughs> I actually really like the storyline because Savage is so unhinged at this point that he just comes barreling through the door, shoving the cameraman down and shoving Schiavone. Like, he feels like an insane person who's just letting loose, and that gives and us a is. lot of credibility. Next up, we get possibly the worst matchup possible in this era. It's Dino Bravo against Ron Garvin. These guys both suck. Were they feuding over that haircut? What the hell is this? (laughs) What's the modern day equivalent of this match? It would have to involve Big Cass, because if we're going to do something terrible, it has to involve Big Cass. The modern equivalent of this match would be like Big Cass versus Kane. Like, like, no. We'll We'll probably get that at WrestleMania. Oh, don't even say that. Like uh, this, like Ron Garvin isn't even really a thing in the company at this point. Like he's just kind of there. He doesn't even get an entrance here. Dino Bravo is only here because Vince is obsessed with the idea of having a star from Montreal. Yes, you need a Montreal guy to draw money up there. So that's the only reason why Dino Bravo gets like a whole five-year run here. And whatever, he'll eventually get murdered by the mafia. So whatever. <laughs> Very, he gets. They shoot him like fifteen or sixteen times. I think he was up to some shit. Yeah, he was involved in. He was uh, smuggling cigarettes or something, and uh, a drug cartel moved in. Is what I've heard. Yeah, uh, he went down bad. Uh, Jimmy Snuka is introduced by Howard Finkel before this match, and he gets a full entrance. This is Snuka's return after being gone from the company since. 85, I think. He does not get a gigantic pop no, for having been gone. This is one of many terrible Jimmy Snuka comebacks. And, like, he's already uh, kind of a relic at this point. Because he, he, he got started late. He was, he was pretty old even during his run, like, you know, 82, 83, when he's the actual top guy. I think he was already well into his 30s at that point. I think so, too, yeah. And, I mean, he's not... When he eventually comes down off the steroids a little, he's. it turns out that he's not very good. This is a terrible match. Bravo gets the win with the side slam, and Garvin roughs, roughs up Frenchie Martin after the match. Terrible. Asshole. No reason for this match to happen. This show has 14 matches on it. Yeah. You cannot tell me with a straight face that this match needed to happen. 14 big matches. <laughs> Here in the event center. Uh, next up, things get much better. We've got the Brain Busters against Strike Force. Yes. Um, God, I wish Arn Tully had been around longer in the WWF. I mean, they're a weird fit, but they're so good they make it work. Like everybody, they, underst- they don't have music either because they don't need music. Everyone understands that Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard are good wrestlers. Mostly, though, they didn't really work tagging with each other. Like, they worked yeah. with each other as part of the Four Horsemen. But mostly, Arn was teamed with Ole and then later with some other people. And you say Ole? Ole! That's all I've always pronounced Hispanic it. now? <laughs> I've always pronounced it that way. Ole Anderson. Ole Anderson. He would hate that. Uh, but mostly, and Tully Blanchard was like the Intercontinental Championship level guy. Watching them team together, though, it looks like they've been teaming for 50 years. 
because they're two of the best wrestlers ever. They're just studs in the ring. Arn Anderson may be the best wrestler who ever lived. I think he's the best tag wrestler. He was a great singles guy too, but it's just like he everybody he teamed with, it was awesome. With Gene Anderson, with Ole Anderson, with Tully, with Zabisco. He made Larry Zabisco look good. Literally every move that he makes is perfect. Yeah. Everywhere that he's supposed to be, he's already there and he's been there. And he makes it look like he was just chilling. No big deal. Like he makes it look so easy. Yeah. Killer promo too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Arn Anderson was the man. Uh, one of the most, I mean, like obviously well-respected, but still one of the most underrated of all time. Absolutely. The fact that he never won the WCW title when a bunch of scrubs did during the 90s, travesty. Uh, so this is Strike Force's first time teaming up in months. Martel was gone for most of '88 because his wife was sick. Uh, I don't remember what the kayfabe. I think it was a kayfabe injury. I think they had demolition take him out. Right, I think so too. Um, Strike Force dominate early. Martel gets on in the Boston Crab. Um, then he and Santana lock in stereo figure fours. Uh, the referee gets distracted. Arn gets a cheap shot. Uh, we get heat. Uh, Tito throws Arn off the top rope. He goes to tag Martel, but Martel is acting like he's still hurt and won't tag in. And then he walks away. This is the exact same thing they did with Jason Jordan at the Royal Rumble. Yes, it is. And I think it was leading to the same thing. Yeah, till turned out Jason Jordan had fucked up his neck. Yeah. And this is the end of Strike Force and the beginning of Rick the Model Martel. Thank God. And then they go backstage for an interview and Rick Martell is furious with Rick. Mar he is so disappointed in him. And Rick Martell has never cut a good promo in his life to this point. Not as the AWA champion, not as part of strike force. He's a shit, shit promo, but here he's feeling it. And yeah. you can tell he's always wanted to do this. This, I mean, this is who he is. He's a bad guy. He's just one of those guys who's meant to be a heel. And like, he's just like, Oh, uh, Santana's his chemistry was off, his timing was off, and he got what he deserved. And it's like the whole time, Gene is just talking over him. You son of a bitch! <laughs> How could you do that? God, Rick Martel was even into WCW in '98 when he showed up for that quick run before he got hurt. He was money. Yeah, it's just it's kind of a shame they never kind of weaponized that into being like he should have gotten a run with Hogan. Unfortunately, like there's only so many people who can. I think he's big enough to work Hogan. Well, maybe if there was a second person to wrestle who wasn't Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. Yeah. Okay, so next up we get a really long and strange segment. Yeah. They're teasing a Roddy Piper return. Instead, we get Brother Love coming out in a kilt and bagpipes. And then years before we got to hear Bruce Pritchard's great impersonations on his podcast, we get Pritchard doing Roddy Piper, uh, like interviewing him, quote unquote. It is not good. Crowd is not into it. Crowd doesn't get it. I don't think that people thought that Piper was actually going to be here. So I'm not sure that they thought that this was going to pay off in anything. So it doesn't get any heat. They're just like, why are you making fun of Piper? And then Morton Downey Jr. comes down. Um, who tell for the crowd? Please tell us who Morton Downey Jr. was. 
Uh, Morton Downey Jr. was like a shock jock radio host out in, I think, San Francisco, who then got a TV show, which was really popular here in the late 80s. You know, kind of, uh, in some ways, a bit of a Rush Limbaugh before Rush Limbaugh, like less politically focused, but just, you know, a kind of conservative shock jock. Got it. So natural Um, heel. Yeah, no, and like th- this was a legitimate celebrity get. That show was really popular, like a bit of a kind of a Jerry Springer show before Jerry Springer. Um, he comes down, they talk a little shit, and then Piper shows up. So it's Piper's first appearance since WrestleMania three, and uh, he is one of the like the only three people who get a pop on this whole show are like Piper Hogan and Ventura. Yeah. I, didn't comment on it, but yeah, the crowd was dead as shit tonight. Again, yeah. this I think this was just like the, the, no amount of money Trump was paying them was making like having to sit through these brutal shows worth it. And it's mostly just high rollers from the casino. There's it's yeah. not fans. They don't care. Yeah, but I mean, instead they go to Sky Dome next year, sell you know sixty thousand tickets, and bring in even more money. Yep. Um. Piper runs off Brother Love, rips off his kilt. We get to see Brother Love's red underwears. Um, Piper interviews Downey. Downey keeps blowing smoke in Piper's face, so Piper blasts him with a fire extinguisher. Um, A moment that would be replayed many, many times over the years. And for good reason, because this is a long, stupid segment. Yes, but it's good payoff. That's a great moment. when he And then just watching Piper be like, please, please don't do that. Like (laughs) the most polite Piper has ever been. Mr. Downey, will will, will you please not blow your cigarette in my face? (laughs) And then Downey just signs his own death warrant. (sighs) Yeah. That's pretty Uh, great. I wish it sucks so much that Piper is in so many segments and not matches in this era. I I, I think it's partially just because he didn't know whether he really, he was coming or going at any given point. He's, he's just, I mean, for years after this, he's just in, I mean, there's a lot of times he shows up just for WrestleMania, like a bunch of, he was, he was the innovator of that move. Right. It's just the first guy to realize he could swoop in and get a big payday for working WrestleMania, and that would pretty much be his nut for the year. We missed a lot of prime Roddy Piper from this era because of this stuff. And, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that go into that, but you've heard us complain about the lack of a number two babyface on the show about a hundred times. This is the guy. This is the guy. (laughs) Uh, Backstage, Mean Gene, previews, No Holds Barred. What's that smell? What's that smell? And then Sean Mooney interviews Trump. He thinks it's great, tremendous, the best we've ever seen. Uh, Jesse then goes on a rant about Hogan being in a movie. Yes. Something. This is the best part of the show. How dare he step into Hollywood, gorilla? Let me tell you something, Hulk Hogan. Hollywood is my domain, but I can see why you're doing it. You're doing it, Hogan, because you're going to lose to Macho Man. And when you lose to him, you're going to have no job, Hulk Hogan. So you're going to come out to Hollywood, try to invade my territory. It ain't big enough for both of us, Hogan. But if you want to come out, I'll give Hogan a job in Hollywood. He can drive my limo. Let the record show. 
that if Ooh. this had been the go home promo for a match between Ventura yeah. and Hogan, it would have drawn huge money. Oh my God, Jesse could have been such a star as a wrestler in this era. This is a go home promo for a match that never takes place. It's he's, so weird. He's just showing off. I mean, he, he just wants to remind everybody he's the man. It's so good, though. That's like I think I, it's also he knows his time is running out, so he's given even fewer fucks than before. I just love the idea that on WrestleMania, that somebody can just be like, "Hey, I want to cut a promo on the man on the main <laughs> yeah, guy." Yeah, block out two minutes for me. Like if JBL was on commentary, he's like, "Hey, hey, hey, hold on, I want to cut a promo on Roman." Okay, go for it. Uh, we get a Savage Hogan video package. This must be intermission because we haven't had a match in 10 minutes. Yep. Actually, well, longer than that because we have the really long Piper segment. But here we're going backstage. We get a Hogan promo, which is disappointingly sane compared to the last few years. He he does say that Trump had to make sure he sent his team of seismologists out to Atlantic City to check the foundations for when the mega powers explode. To, to make sure everything doesn't crumble into the ocean. I love, first of all, he's still obsessed with things crumbling into the ocean. Yeah. Like a huge fan of the Poseidon adventure or something. I don't know. Had that like just come out or something? Like why is <laughs> he so he just, obsessed? he just watched it. Like he just got a VCR and started renting some movies, caught some things he'd never seen before. That's the only free movie on pay-per-view at the Trump <laughs> Plaza. <laughs> yeah. He is weirdly obsessed with, things crumbling into the ocean and i also i'm just tickled by the idea of donald trump having a team of seismologists <laughs> oh you gotta have him on call you got to uh next up we've got andre the giant against jake the snake roberts andre's old rival big john stud stud is the referee here the storyline is that andre is petrified of snakes if he sees damien he'll faint he'll have a heart attack um Reasonably entertaining physical comedy. It's a, such a good way to go with the storyline because obviously Andre can't do much here. No, like he's, it's, he's getting rough. He shouldn't be doing singles matches anymore. So they're going to make this all like a comedy match, and that's smart. Um, so Andre immediately slips the turnbuckle pad off and slams Jake face into the exposed turnbuckle. This has always annoyed me in wrestling: the idea that hitting that tiny little um, thing on the turnbuckle is somehow going to knock you out. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Especially, like, I don't know, even if it were made out of, like, titanium, like, it still wouldn't matter because you're not going to hit it with your face very hard. Yeah. It's, like, the size of a quarter. Meanwhile, guys get slammed into the ring post and that doesn't finish them off. Right. That's why they, they seem to have updated that. They don't do that anymore. Now they go like through and like hit the, the big metal thing covering yeah. the turnbuckle, like the, the rail. Like that's that's a way better spot. Uh, Andre, uh, J Jake makes a comeback, but Andre shuts it down. Jake makes another comeback, knee lifts, some jabs. Now Andre hits the exposed turnbuckle. Uh, Jake tries to bring Damien in. DiBiase shows up, swipes the snake, runs away. Meanwhile, Stud and Andre get into it in the ring, and that's the finish as Andre is disqualified. Yep. <laughs> I mean, what did you really expect from Andre at this point? 
honestly, this match went longer than I thought it possibly could. It goes almost 10 minutes. Yeah. I mean, they do some stuff. Uh, Tony Schiavone interviews Sherry. She rips on Rock and Robin singing. Well yeah. deserved. Oh my God, yes. That just means she has ears. Next up, we've got the Hart Foundation against Greg Valentine and the Honky Tonk Man. They are not billed as rhythm and blues yet, and they have not made Valentine dye his hair yet. And yet, Greg Valentine still looks like there's anywhere on the planet he'd rather be. He clearly hates this team. And it's not a good tag team. Like, no, it's, just, it, it's a bad fit. And like, why would they give this feels like a rib on Valentine, like that they're going to make him do this dancing and singing thing. He's clearly not into, but like, there's no more room left in the company for Valentine. I don't know why he's still there. I mean, honky too. I'm surprised is still there. I figured he, I, I was expecting he'd drop the IC title and be gone. I mean, and if they had cut Valentine, clearly, like, NWA, WCW would have been happy to have him. I don't know why they just didn't do that, except maybe for that reason. Yeah, just to keep him away from Crockett. Right. Uh, the Hart Foundation have turned face. Uh, they dominate, including an impressive um, uh, slingshot shoulder block by Neidhart. Uh, Brett hits a backbreaker but misses the elbow drop. Um Monsoon references Valentine losing weight, which is at least the second time we've heard that during the WrestleMania broadcast. And he's still fat. Stop yeah, saying that. Fatter than shit here. He looked good at WrestleMania one, not so much anymore. I mean, this is like five years later. Yeah. Uh, Honky hits the shake, rattle, and roll. Tags in Valentine. Valentine drops the shin guard, so you know things are getting serious. But Brett trips him. Um, Brett hits a crossbody, but Honky's kickout sends him all the way out to the floor. Uh, Valentine and Honky continue to double team Brett. Brett makes a hot tag. We get a big drop kick from Nightheart, a scoop slam, and an elbow drop from Brett. Snap suplex. Honky goes for Jimmy Hart's megaphone, but Nightheart gets it. He throws it to Brett. Brett hits Honky for the win. A pretty good match, but I kind of wish they'd found a better team for the Hart Foundation to go against. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of great tag teams still around, even at this point, when, God, and they're just kind of strapping any two people together that they can find and turning them into tag teams. And even still, it's like the best tag team era of all time. It's crazy that we never got the Hart Foundation against the Rockers in a real big match. Well, they were going to do it. They had that one match on Saturday night's main event where the rope broke, and so they cut it out. How different history might have been had that match actually taken place where we could see it. It's so strange that the Rockers won the belts there, and it's like, oh, we can't air the match. And then Vince is like, oh, let's not put the belts on them then. It feels like they're punishing the Rockers for their ring breaking. It was their fault. God damn it. Yeah, we'll do it later. It's they fine. should have used their willpower to keep the ring from breaking. <laughs> uh, we've got next, we've got for the Intercontinental title, the Ultimate Warrior defending against Rick Rude. Warrior, much bigger and more over this year than he was last year. He's really come into his own. Oh, yeah. And this is great. And I love Ultimate Warrior versus Rick Rude matches. Yeah. It might be the only Rick Rude that I really love, but he's such a great foil for Warrior. This and really seems like what his reputation is based on, that he had good matches with, like he carried Warrior to good matches is kind of 
when people are talking about what a great worker Rude is, it's always him and Warrior that they're referencing. Right. And I think maybe it was just that they had a lot of chemistry. And maybe they just got along really great in real life. Because as I think we pointed out when we did that SummerSlam, Warrior sells for Rude in a way he never really sold for anybody else. I wonder, like, I, I wonder if he respects Rude because Rude is the only guy on the roster with a body as good as him. That might be the case. But like Warrior is bumping for Rick Rude here. Yeah. Um, amazingly, Heenan has never managed a champion before this, as is pointed out on commentary. That's incredible, considering yeah. he manages half the roster. Um, they've sadly lost the rights to Rick Rude's actual theme, so they dub in a different one on the network now. And it's okay, but it's not yeah. the same. Not, not the, not the real thing. Uh, Rude wants these high-rolling Atlantic City sweat hogs to keep the noise down. Never has the word sweat hog been more accurate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rude tries to kick Warrior before the bell, but he accidentally kicks the IC title belt and hurts his foot. This is one of my favorite spots in <laughs> wrestling history. <laughs> I've never seen this before. Stupid ass Rick Rude. Alton Warrior is wearing the belt, the title belt as a title belt. <laughs> Rick Rude tries to knee him in the groin, hits the belt, busts his leg up, and sells it. <laughs> Uh, he comes back with a missile drop kick a few minutes later, so the injury is not permanent. But that was a nice looking missile drop kick. Oh, God, yeah, it was. Uh, Warrior hits two scoop slams and a bear hug. Rude makes a comeback. He hits a pile driver, uh, but his back is hurt. He's slow to make the cover. Warrior hulks up, hits the shoulder tackle, a face buster. Rude is just bumping everywhere right now. It's kind of like Rick Rude is the babyface in this match. Yeah, I mean, he's just getting bounced around by Warrior. As we you know, pointed out, Warrior cannot show vulnerability as a character, so he's not going to sell. Yeah. And, I mean, he takes bumps here, and it's important to realize war, that... He sells a lot, relatively speaking, for a Warrior match here. It's important to note that before this, I'm not sure he had taken three bumps ever in the company. <laughs> So he probably yeah. bumps more here than he did against Andre. Warrior misses a charge into the corner. Rude goes for the Rude Awakening, but Warrior powers out. Cool Jesse spot. says, imagine the psychological devastation. God, I love Jesse. Uh, Trump actually got into this match. That's how you knew it was good. I'm sure if you had just looked into the thought bubble in Trump's head, he just ima imagining his head on Warrior's body, and that's how he saw himself. <laughs> Hey, that's me out there. Warrior clotheslines Rude to the floor. Rude goes to climb back in. Warrior tries to suplex him in, but Heenan grabs Warrior's foot. Rude falls into a bridge. Heenan holds the foot down. One, two, three. Rude pulls the offset. Awesome finish. Yeah. Um, perfectly sets up their awesome, awesome SummerSlam match, which we reviewed in our SummerSlam 89 episode. Which is... Awesome. So, so, so good. Yeah. And this is a great way to get the belt off of Warrior for a minute and kind of like give Rude like his one moment that he'll ever really have. Yeah. Um, gives him a great chase for the B House shows after WrestleMania. Yep. And then, speaking of great chases, Ultimate Warrior then chases Bobby Heenan around the ring until yes. he catches him. And kicks his ass. I, his ass. I, I need to I need to look up some of these weasel suit matches they had. 
which is actually one of the reasons why Bobby Heenan had to stop wrestling. Because, because Warrior broke his neck. Warrior was murdering him in the ring every night. I just It's one of those, like, you might say Warrior didn't know better, but it's like, how do you not know better than to just toss, like, a 50-year-old man around? But if you look at, like, the way that he does certain moves, like, he doesn't know how to do moves. Oh, he's just, yeah, he was, un- I mean, he was, un- he was just reckless. He was unsafe. I can't remember who said it, but at some point, like, somebody did a, like, a documentary about it where he's just like, yeah, you know how normally when people, like, go to put you up for, like, a power slam, they, like, grab you by the thigh? He just grab your whole dick and balls in his hand and lift you up <laughs> in the sky. Uh, next up, we've got Bad News Brown against Jim Duggan. Do you think somebody's doing a job in this match? God, I hope so. <laughs> no. no. Uh, Bad News Brown doesn't do no jobs, and nobody's going to convince him to. Why does Bad News Brown work here? Why? Because <laughs> he, he likes the money and hates everything and everyone else. But here's the thing. like, It's not like he's Piper, where he's like super popular, so okay, he doesn't have to do jobs. He's not even that important, but you can't beat him ever. I think everybody's afraid of him. I think that's a good point. I think... <laughs> Who's going to give him his termination notice? Nobody's volunteering. Yeah. Um, I, Andre was afraid of him. Like, For good fucking reason. Yeah, We're talking about Andre an Olympi- a judo Olympian. Yeah. Bronze medalist at the Montreal Games. One of the few, Olympian, one of the few Olympic medalists in WWE history. Um, him, Angle, and Ronda Rousey are the only three I can think of. And Ronda actually in the same event, judo. Yeah. Uh, lots of punching. Bad news misses the ghetto blaster. Three point stance, clothesline sends bad news to the floor. Bad news brings in a chair. Duggan gets the two by four. Both guys are disqualified. Three minutes. Move on. <coughs> now, I would say that this match makes sense because you have to have the cool down match before the main event. That's just a historical tradition. But there's still another match. Yep. So, no, you didn't have to have this. Bobby the Brain Heenan against the Red Rooster. And that's what we all came to see, ladies and gentlemen. The oh, Red the Rooster. Fucking Red Rooster. I'm glad Terry Taylor had this shitty gimmick, though, because it sounds like he's one of the worst people in pro wrestling. Yeah, I am not a fan. I Has anyone ever said anything good about Terry Taylor? I mean, he gave Bobby Roode his robe, so that's nice. Unless that Bobby Roode nice. stole it. I don't know. <laughs> I hope he stole it. This, you've probably heard about how stupid the Red Rooster is, but until you've seen his stupid-ass hair, you won't believe how stupid it is. Like, I just, it's hard to believe a group of adults thought this was a good character. I, and here's the thing. It's not just that his look was his character, that the Rooster thing was his character. His character was that he was a brand-new wrestler who didn't know shit. Who Bobby Heenan literally had to tell him what to do every minute of his matches. How is that supposed to get over? I it seems like it wasn't. But it's just it's crazy to think they would sign somebody and intentionally make them look like shit, but sometimes that just seems like the most obvious explanation. Normally I am not a conspiracy theory guy when it comes to like, yeah, oh, Vince is just burying this guy, but man, if you told if you gave me credible reason to think that Vince was burying this guy, I would believe you. Yeah. 
So Heenan just got his ass kicked by the warrior. He comes limping out. He is hilariously in his Andre the Giant tights, which I always love. <laughs> this match lasts 30 seconds. Rooster runs Heenan into the corner and pins him. Uh, Brooklyn Brawler, who is Heenan's backup, attacks Rooster, but Taylor comes back and runs him off. I love that none of Heenan's like, actual good wrestlers will support him here. Yeah, that's the best part. Is he manages no to Andre, have to No rude. Yeah, they're all busy. <laughs> uh, mean Gene interviews Elizabeth. She says she'll be in a neutral corner tonight, support both men, <laughs> just hoping no injuries. Uh, Shivani is in the locker room saying that it's empty because everyone has gone out to watch the main event. I thought that was a really cool touch. Except that he says that uh, everyone's left to go to the arena to watch the main event, which implies that the locker room is not in the arena, which is uh, weird. Yeah, I don't know, and I don't know where I don't know where they went to watch the match. Yeah, like I, I guess they're all the curtain. But this is actually similar to that Star K ninety seven, where like half the roster like pays their own way to come see Hogan Sting. Yeah. Like that's that's a cool touch. I wish that they had had everybody go out to actually watch it. Like I love that. Ooh. Sean Mooney asks a bunch of fans who they think is going to win. Can we please just get to the main event? Yes, please. The show has been going forever. Um, well, how long was this one? This was like three hours and 40 minutes, I think. Yeah, I mean, I sat down with like three hours to spare to watch this show. And like I was like, uh, uh, fuck. Uh, yeah, I got to put this back one, this podcast an hour. This one was, yeah, this one was edging towards four hours. And for no reason... There's no, nothing on the undercard you couldn't cut. Nothing. Yeah. But um, nobody bought this to watch anything except what we're about to talk about. We're finally here for the WWF Championship. Randy Savage defends against Hulk Hogan. Savage is forced to enter first despite being the champion. Perfect for the story. Oh my God, yes. Normally I complain about the champion having to walk first, but it made total sense here. And Jesse is immediately on top of that. Like, why is the champion coming yep. out last? Because Jesse's the original smart. Elizabeth enters. Jesse calls her a gold digger. Jesse was all over her in this match. That's so funny that like he sets his Hogan hate aside for a second to bury Elizabeth. <laughs> that she devil. Uh. Um. Hogan, Jesse is just blasting Hogan for coming after Savage's woman too. He is. This is one of his best matches. Absolutely, he's on fire, and it's it's made a little bit worse that like Elizabeth cuts that promo explaining like it's supposed to be to explain her position here, but she doesn't. Like she she expresses no opinion whatsoever about what's going on, and she never really does. And I understand that the idea is not to portray like where she'll wind up or whatever, but. It's wishy-washy, and Jesse's right to like bust her down for it. Is there any intrigue here that she could turn on either of them? As the match goes on, like she defends in both of them and checks on both of them throughout the course of the match. But if I was during that era, I don't think I ever could have possibly believed that Elizabeth could turn heel. At least not yeah. intentionally. And I think that's—I mean, I think that's the hottest thing they could have done would have been if Elizabeth had screwed over Hogan, especially if she had done it by accident, so she could stay a babyface. 
like Savage just got in her head and she just yeah. could not help her man. Yeah, you, you put the heat on Savage then instead of her. Right. But yeah, like she's been manipulated into it by Savage. And she doesn't she want to be a heel, like but biggest asshole. And then you can still do the whole Macho King thing and yep. just have it be with her and she hates it. The problem is, does she eventually have to wind up with Hogan if you do that? No, oh, that would have been gross. Right? Um, Hogan, they lock up. Hogan throws Savage to the mat. He hits a big shoulder block and Savage powders. <laughs> Hogan pursues Savage to the floor. Savage pulls Elizabeth in front of him as a human shield. Hilarious. Jesse says, with what Elizabeth has pulled, a punch in the nose might not look so bad for her. Yeah. Jesus. Jesse, come on, man. Hogan gets savage with a drop toe hold, applies a front face lock. Um, savage gets out with a big back suplex. Hogan gets some punches. Savage rakes his eyes, then hits the double axe handle. Um, savage... Gets an arm ringer, but Hogan escapes with a leverage move. Jesse, of course, says he pulled the tights. Savage makes a comeback with a clothesline. Hogan gets color. Yeah, he does. And it's actually kind of a shocking moment. Yeah. Uh, first, I mean, first time I can remember seeing him bleed. I say he bled at Mania 2, right? No, Bundy did. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we were saying Hogan should have bled in that match. Probably should have bled against Andre, too. You should just... Well, I mean, at that point, he's just flair. Just bleed every time. Come on, man. Would have been ahead of its time. Right. Um, Hogan blocks a Savage kick with an atomic drop. Hogan misses an elbow drop. Savage hits his, you know, kind of classic high knee to the back and then rolls Hogan up with the tights for a two count. Hogan gets two clotheslines... Our Savage hits the clotheslines, then slams Hogan over the top rope to the floor. Uh, Jesse encourages him to just stay down and get counted out. Elizabeth helps up Savage, and he yells at her. Uh, Hogan and Savage fight on the floor. Hogan's going to run Savage into the ring post, but Elizabeth blocks it. That gives Savage the opportunity to post Hogan. And at this point, Hebner's had enough, and he tells Elizabeth to leave. Now, it feels like in that moment that that's going to lead to something. Like she's going to come back out maybe with somebody or she's going to come back out and interfere again. But no, she just kind of leaves. <laughs> and she's gone. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know why they did that. I don't feel like that was really the right move because I think that did suck a lot of the tension out of this. Right. Um, Savage hits Hogan with the axe handle to the floor. That drives Hogan's throat into the barricade. He's really selling here. It's important to note, too, that Hulk Hogan's probably like six inches taller than Randy Savage. Yeah. Like, when you finally see them in the ring together, Hulk towers over Savage. Hogan was so damn big. Yeah. And so Hogan spends a lot of this match making Savage look like a threat, which is good because that's important because if he hadn't, he would have buried him. And Savage is intense enough that, you know, when he's firing up on Hogan, you could, you believe he could beat him up. And he's flying everywhere. He never stops. Yeah. Uh, Savage hits his classic clothesline move where he you know, jumps over the top rope. I don't really know what to call this. I think it's, good. it's not the hot shot, but, like, it's something like that. 
Yeah. Uh, Savage hits the flying elbow. Hogan kicks out at one and hulks up. <coughs> and this is my not, only problem. Not a, fan, with this not a fan of this at all. This yeah. is my only problem with this match. This absolutely should have happened. He should have kicked out at one, hulked up, dropped the leg, and Randy should have kicked out. Ooh, that's pretty bold there, brother. I know that that's coming from our era where that's what you do in matches like this because that just keeps driving the intensity higher. And the point is to have the best possible match, which is not necessarily the point of this. I understand all of that. But even if Hogan wins, if Savage kicks out of the leg drop, you can continue this feud with something to do with it. You know what I mean? Because then at least Savage is the greatest threat to Hogan he's ever faced. Yeah. And I would have done something to protect the elbow drop. I would have had Savage hit it, but he tweaked his knee and he can't make the cover right away. And so when Hogan kicks out, he had some time to recover. Um, I don't like just kind of kicking out at one and making his finisher look like shit. Yeah, it's a little bit of a burial. He makes Savage look like just another guy. Yeah. And then you know what's coming. Big boot, leg drop, new champion. Hogan wins in about 20 minutes. Excellent match. One of Hogan's best. For sure. And we're not saying that Hogan shouldn't have won. That's clearly... I mean, probably you could have done more with Savage if you had done that thing with Elizabeth that we said. But this is always how it hadn't been intended to be. And Hogan on top, how can you argue with that, right? Yeah, I mean, it was it was the safe play. Um, you know, no no reason. Yeah, I, I can completely understand where they were coming from to put Hogan over here. It's just they could have done it a lot better. But I'm not gonna get too bogged down in that because this is a great match. It's great. People do not remember how good this match is. It is fantastic. Yeah, um, Jesse goes of Hogan. There's a guy who will stoop to any level to get what he wants. Ah, so vicious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is sparing no punches tonight. And then he comes, threatens to come out of retirement and take care of Hogan. God, it's... I so wish that Jesse could have just had one match. Like, what if SummerSlam is Savage and Ventura instead of Zeus? I think they were. I think they were. They they did team up on house shows in like '85 and '86 too. Man, that would have been so good. Yeah. Oh, this is like the number one thing we're coming away with from these shows is Jesse was awesome, and we wish he'd been wrestling. That's the last thing I thought would be my takeaway from the first five WrestleManias is I wish Jesse Ventura had been wrestling on these, but it's so stamped all over them. He's such a star. Yeah, I I, um, I came into this thinking that Hogan versus Roddy Piper is the match we never got. Hogan versus Ventura is maybe the biggest match in the history of wrestling we didn't get. So I somehow forgot to mention this show did a 5.9 buy rate for 767,000 buys. Uh, that would not be surpassed until I believe SummerSlam 1998. And That's then fun. WrestleMania 15 did 800,000 buys. That's wild. Like It's you're, insane. You're talking a decade. And obviously business was down in the 90s, but we Ooh. still have more years of Hogan to go. Yeah. They don't even come particularly, <laughs> they don't come particularly close to this for a long time. 
Uh, the next time they come even close is WrestleMania 14. And that's why we spent so much time talking about this particular storyline is obviously we like to go into detail about storylines and stuff, but this whole show is based on this one match, which is built with this amazing storyline. And there's a reason why it drew so outrageously more than they had any right to think that it would. It's incredible. Yeah. And it just sort of feels like they never did anything like this again. Like, yeah. when is the next time they did something that you felt like was this kind of long-term and meticulously planned out? 1993. With Owen and Brett? The Tatanka and Lex oh, <laughs> <Lex> Luger. <laughs> of course. Yeah, somehow that was not quite as successful. Nope, not quite as successful. Oh, yeah. I mean, so Hogan wins. He poses down. The status quo is restored. But the ultimate challenger is lurking. The ultimate challenger. I can't wait until we cover that. Across the galaxies of space, patterns begin to emerge. Okay, so when we do the promos of Hulk and Ultimate Warrior next time, do you want to be Hulk or you want to be Ultimate Warrior? I think I'm a better Hulk. Okay, I'm going to work on my Ultimate Warrior. <laughs> the Vince opening to WrestleMania six is amazing. Oh my God, I can't wait. Uh, it's next week. It's the ultimate challenge. One of the most iconic WrestleManias, Hulk Hogan versus the ultimate warrior title for title. One of the, probably Hulk Hogan's best in-ring performance of all time. Yeah, I would say so. Warriors. Uh, uh, do you like Hogan warrior or warrior savage more? I am a Hogan warrior guy, but I totally get the other side. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of both. Um, God, Warrior did have some really good matches. It pains me because I'm always on board with Barry and the Warrior, but he had some really good big matches. He could be carried if yeah. he liked you. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't going to hurt you. Yeah, it's just don't let him grab your dick and balls. <laughs> I uh, can't wait to talk about the ultimate challenge next week. Probably, I mean, among the most iconic WrestleManias, but also kind of a box office disappointment. And we'll get into the reasons behind that. Oh yeah. And that'll probably be our unofficial ultimate warrior podcast too. It's title for title. Or was it really? Cause Vince McMahon hates that idea. <laughs>